0: Hello there, and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, some parenting insight from Jonathan Pitts, who directs The Urban Alternative, and his wife, Winter, founder of For Girls Like You. Then it's cold case detective and Christian apologist, Jay Warner Wallace, bringing critical thinking skills to young people in his latest book, helping them to apply those skills to matters of faith. Also, it's Christian singer-songwriter and author Keith Getty providing an update on the ministry God has given to him, as well as his wife Kristen, sharing encouragement to congregations about the importance of singing. And on this edition of The Intersection, from Museum of the Bible, set to open in Washington, D.C. in November, you'll be hearing from Jeremy Burton giving a taste of what visitors can experience at this new museum devoted to the history and impact of God's Word. Next, author and speaker Jay Louder, who has developed some information with respect to suicide and how churches can be more prepared to deal with those who are contemplating taking their own lives. Finally, it's Stephen Aiden of Americans United for Life, one of the pro-life organizations that has been encouraging Congress to take action. Finally, to prevent taxpayer money from going to the nation's largest abortion provider, he analyzes how that can be accomplished. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Jonathan and Witter Pitts are a ministry couple, the parents of four daughters and co-authors of She Is Yours, Trusting God as You Raised the Girl He Gave You. He is the executive director of the Urban Alternative founded by Dr. Tony Evans. She is founder of For Girls Like You, a ministry that includes a quarterly print magazine. From our recent conversation, here are Jonathan and Witter Pitts.
1: I have to go back a little bit and give you a little history of the book itself with the concepts where it birthed. Um, when I first was doing the magazine, one of the things that Jonathan and I did together was we did this 30 days of prayers, and the prayers were centered around us dedicating our girls back to God in all areas of their lives. And so the first prayer was called, She is Yours, and it was just a prayer of us surrendering our desires, our our dreams for our girls, our want to control them, all the things that um, we would normally respond out of fear and want to kind of control about their lives. I mean, society throws all sorts of things at our girls, and so we were instead of responding out of fear, we thought, you know, we'll write these prayers and we just share them through my through for girls like you through the ministry. Um, and so we were writing these prayers and we prayed for things like her future and things like her her education and her friendships, her and salvation, her salvation, her relationship with us, just all these different areas that would cause us. Um, that you would think would cause us to worry and when we feel those worries coming up and those anxieties we just decided we would just pray about it and just surrender it to God and each prayer we would end with Lord she is yours and I trust you with her and so as we were doing that journey it really just became um, a way of life and a mindset of not you know not letting society dictate um, how we should feel or how we should respond to how we should worry or the concerns we should have with our girls and their futures and their emotions and all, you know, the friendship drama and all the things that they go through at this age. Um, but instead, we should respond um, knowing that they are not ours, but they belong to God. And so our job is to just be the bridge that points, that, that kind of just steers them back to him because he's the one that they belong to and he uh, created them. And so that was sort of the the birth and the concepts behind that. And so just walking that journey um You know, we found it doesn't matter what age the girls are, but there are always situations where we need to just turn and remember that they don't belong to us, that we have Mm -hmm. a responsibility, but they belong to God. And so what does he want us to do um, in the process of raising them?
0: and Jonathan there does seem to be a balance there and i think it's so very important that we do regard our children as belonging to god and he has given us a role in raising them and modeling godly behavior and teaching the scriptures and so much that that parents have to do but it can be uh, and I would imagine that you've found this to be sometimes a very overwhelming and challenging task. So where where is the balance, as you see it, between really regarding your children as gifts of God and recognizing they belong to Him ultimately, and really seizing that God-given responsibility to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? Where's Where's the balance as you see it?
2: Yeah, I think the balance is first in recognizing that as parents that we're flawed individuals. And a lot of times— um, you know, as Christians, we understand that, and we understand that we need God to, um, to work in our own lives and grow us. Um, but ultimately, um, the balance is found in understanding who we are in Christ, and then allowing that to work in our own lives, because it's to the degree that we are able to reflect Christ in our lives, um, that'll be to the degree that our girls will actually see Christ in us and reflected in this world. And so I would say, the balance is in us first seeking God and looking, uh, looking, just looking for him to, to be in control of our own lives and for him to be pouring into our lives so they can see Christ in us and then want to have what we have. See, my testimony is I had great godly parents, and by godly, I don't mean they were perfect. They were just parents that just were committed to going back to Christ for everything. Um, so as it related to how they interacted with us as their children, I would see that. And I saw authentic Christianity lived out. And because of that, I was able to taste and see that God is good. You know, that's my testimony. I tasted mm-hmm. and seen that God is good, and therefore I put my trust in him at a, at a young age. And, um, you know, I haven't lived a perfect life, life either. But ultimately it was um, – that's that's really what I what – I, when, I, when I look at the balance, the balance is around understanding who we are in Christ so we can point them to who Christ is. I, I say that, um, you know, they'll see Christ in other people prayerfully. They'll see him in their, their school teachers. They'll see him in their pastor. They'll see him in coaches and all these different people in their lives – but that we should be that primary reflection of Christ in their life. That's, that's really our goal and what we really set out on this journey. And as parents, what we try to aspire to and live, live up to ourselves, although imperfectly. So we need Christ's help with that.
0: Jonathan and Winter Pitts here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website for forgirlslikeyou.com. The intersection continues now with cold case detective and Christian author and apologist J. Warner Wallace. In a recent conversation, he discussed the application of his skills to an investigation of the scriptures and shared information about the material in the book, God's Crime Scene for Kids, which is related to his book, God's Crime Scene, Dealing with Matters of the Existence of God. Here now is Jay Warner Wallace.
3: I've got a dead body in the room. There's a pistol laying next to the body. But I discovered that 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 pistol is registered to that victim. And that pistol has been in the room the whole time. It's been there for years. It's his pistol. Also, if I find a suicide note, let's say, written in his handwriting with a pen that I find, in the room on paper that I find elsewhere in the room. Well, now I can explain everything that's in the room by staying in the room for the answer. This is probably gonna be a suicide, right? But if I find that that gun does not belong to him, doesn't even belong in the house, it's registered to somebody else who doesn't live there. And if I find footprints, bloody footprints that lead out of the room, well, now the best explanation is not in the room, it's outside the room. So if you looked at the universe in a similar way and asked the question, of all the evidence we find in the universe, can I explain this evidence by staying inside the room of the natural universe? In other words, using nothing more than space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, can I explain all the things that I see in the room? Or is the better explanation outside of a natural explanation, it involves something other than space, time, uh, you know, matter, uh, chemistry, and physics. If there's something that if that's a better explanation, well now I've got again evidence of an intruder, only in this case the intruder is something at the scale of the cosmos. So I use this technique of staying inside the room for the answer or going outside the room for the answer to demonstrate that the eight most important pieces of evidence in the universe cannot be explained by staying inside the natural universe. The better explanation is supernatural. Now, that makes it difficult, as you know, though. There's some complex topics here, mind and consciousness and free agency and and moral objective, moral truths and the origin of life in the universe. I examine a lot of kind of detailed things in God's crime scene, and I thought, how do we make this um, presentable, uh, accessible to kids 8 to 12? And so what we've tried to do in all of our books – I don't know if you're familiar with Lee, of course, Lee Strobel, who wrote The Case for Christ. He's got a brilliant kids series, The Case for Christ for Kids, The Case for – The Creator for Kids, a lot of great books. And we knew those were already out there. We wanted to go a slightly different way, so here's what we did. Each of our books is a fictional story in which cadets who are attending a junior cadet academy, learning from a master detective – how to Solve Cases, are trying to solve a mystery. In the first book, God's uh, Cold Case Christianity for Kids, it's a mystery of a skateboard. How did this skateboard first appear at the school? In the second book, it's a mystery involving a, a box in an attic that contains certain items. And so over the course of eight to ten chapters, we're having the reader solve these mysteries And along the way, they're going to learn detective skills that they will then turn to look at Christianity and the evidence for God's existence. So what we tried to do here was uh, create two parallel stories, one involving the mystery, which is rather interesting to kids, and the other involving the case for Christian theism. And so I think what that does, hopefully, is it gets kids – I hear this over and over again – they'll read that first chapter, and they're hooked. Now they're in because they want to solve this mystery, and along the way they're going to develop critical thinking skills that will help them to make the case for God's existence. If I was to come into a scene, and I'm not quite sure if there was a a killer involved or it was an accidental scene, but on the wall – uh, I saw the handwriting of the of the uh, the suspect saying I you know, did this murder for whatever reason. I would have good reason to believe that that's a crime based on the information on the wall. Information is always attributable to an intelligent source. Now, of course, I never use homicides. In any of my kids' books, we try to find a way to, to, to contextualize it without being too gruesome, right? So the right, idea right. here is, though, that if I found a note from the perpetrator, did I just misplace my book or I found a note that said, yep, I stole your book? Well, then you know you've got an intelligent source for the information on the letter. And so we talk about that in terms of DNA. We've got information in the genetic code. We have no example anywhere in the history of science or the history of the universe in which information has ever come from anything other than intelligence. So, if we see information in DNA, I think it's reasonable to ask, what is the intelligent source for the information in DNA? Simple thinking skill—you um, know, attributing uh, information to intelligence. Why information requires free agency? Why it requires us to make free choices between alternatives? Whenever we write anything, we're making choices between letters and words that we're going to use, and that requires an intelligent agent who can think freely and write freely. And if that's the case. We're looking for an author of life. Oh, isn't that interesting? That's exactly how Jesus is described. Mm. So that makes sense, given that the author uh, is actually writing the genetic code that is responsible for all life in the universe.
0: J. Warner Wallace here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website, coldcasechristianity.com. This is The Intersection podcast with Christian musical artist, songwriter, and worship leader Keith Getty. In our recent conversation, he talked about his recent trip to the United Kingdom leading worship in the building of the Houses of Parliament. Also, this was in advance of the Sing Music Conference in Nashville. He also discussed the book, Sing How Worship Transforms Your Life, Family, and Church. From that conversation, this is Keith Getty.
4: After the OBE award in, in June, we were asked by the, the British government, um, a, a number of Christians inside it, that they heard about the, that, that brought them to their recognition. And then then with the, uh, with the conference, they said, what about launching Singh, doing a pre-launch of Singh at the actual Houses of Parliament buildings in, in their crypt in the basement? They have this old chapel. It's almost like watching one of those movies. <laughs> and we had we had some of the house, some members of the House of Lords. We had barons and baronesses and MPs, the Speaker of the House, and all came along, and we got to for an hour share about this vision for singing, which of course was inspired by Martin Luther in the Houses of Parliament, which indeed was the seat of the Reformation. So we had this unique occasion of of British uh, gentry and and political leaders, and able to share about the excitement of singing. And then, of course, the book is just the book is just out, and then the big global conference happens on Monday. So we're pretty excited, and um, the two weeks will come to a the two weeks will come to an apex of a crescendo <laughs> when we hit Alabama on the Sunday.
0: That is awesome. And you mentioned OBE. You were honored with that by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth the Second back in the summer. OBE stands for Officer of the Order of the British Empire. So for those that may not have caught my conversation with you after that took place what does this mean uh, not a lot actually um <laughs> it, it's, it's an oh, award come
4: it's a it, it's a nice it's a nice thing it, it, it happened in part it was, the, it was the Northern Irish government proposed me as a as their person for the year and so it was, a, it was it was an honor to be it was an honor to be proposed and uh, and to get the award obviously and i think also also in Britain the heritage of him is still a huge thing so those things but really but, it, but it's the first it's certainly the first time a Christian musician has been given that award and so for that we're really really grateful and um, we hope that it brings many opportunities in the, you know to, to to share with the Lord in, in the British government and in the American government and where else so it's a it's a it's a really unique opportunity and as I said you know Tuesday night was just a beautiful beautiful evening and we're so grateful for it. The book is really looking at, first of all, why we sing and just the importance and the holy privilege that that is, but then looking at how singing affects every part of our Christian lives, from how it affects our own lives and and our minds and our emotions, to, to how it affects our family lives and how it can really affect and encourage and build up our children, to the effect that it has in our churches and just the importance that it is to sing to one another each Sunday. And then, of course, then looking a little bit. Uh, at, at the witness of congregational, singing, both high singing fires is to witness, but how, even in itself, it is a witness, even looking at American history and how the revival history of America is often told through the songs and the, and the dynamic singing that happened on those occasions.
0: I remember back when you were in Montgomery and uh, addressing a group of music ministers in advance of a Montgomery family Christmas, you were talking about really the standard for a uh, service uh, for a music service. For those that are involved in worship leadership, and that actually transcends just the minister of music and the worship leader, but also choir members and praise band members and such. But the the standard is how well the congregation is singing. And you know, I think that's so very, very important. I mean, the purpose of uh, of singing hymns or praise choruses or worship songs or whatever it's it's not about the performance of the musicians. It's about how the congregation is engaged to sing. So I wanted you to relate just a bit more about that for us.
4: Well, I think yeah, I think part of one of the real moments for us in having to write this book was when we did a series of talks around around the states in, in two thousand and thirteen. And we kept asking this question, what's the first question you ask, you know, when you go for Sunday lunch and you're all sitting talking about the church service and everybody who leads it, or perhaps Monday morning when you're in the staff room and you're reviewing the service, what's the first question you ask about music? And in all those talks, we heard almost nobody say, how did the congregation sing? When you talk about music, what question do you ask? And all the questions were good questions about songs and style and performance and production and and personnel. These these questions are all questions that are important, that are valid, and then indeed that are questions that the conference are addressing. But the core question, actually, is how do your congregation sing? Because that's that's what we're commanded to do. So we're there to serve the congregation singing. So if the church you're attending is more obsessed by the the, the performance, whether it's the choir's performance or the, or the rock band at the front's performance or the worship leader's performance, and not with the congregation singing, there is something fundamentally flawed about how your church is approaching singing. But, of course, it's more than that, because... My wife always says, uh, you know, a congregational thing on a Sunday is a feast that is prepared during the week in the home. So there's a challenge for us as families. There's a challenge for you and I as individuals from who got up this morning to make sure that, you know, that our minds and hearts are are, are right as well. And and singing and and the hymns that are a part of our life have such a foundational impact on that.
0: Keith Getty here on The Intersection. You can learn more at Getty, G-E-T-T-Y, music.com. This is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations from recent guests on The Intersection Podcast. Also, through that site, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three With three stories of relevance to the Christian community, it is released on a weekly basis. Also, there's the front room, including devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. I spoke recently with Jeremy Burton, Director of Communications for Museum of the Bible, scheduled to open this November in Washington, D.C., In our conversation, he shared about the background of the museum and offered a preview of some of the features of it, one of those including the first exhibit item, an exact replica of the Liberty Bell. Here now is Jeremy Burton.
5: Whenever you come to visit the museum, there's three main uh, floors that you're going to see. So we're going to talk about the history of the Bible, the narrative of the Bible and the impact of the Bible. So to break that down a little bit, the history floor is, is where you're going to see the, the majority of the artifacts. So we have a, everything from Dead Sea scroll fragments to illuminated Bibles, these be- there are these beautiful ornate Bibles um, to um, uh, we've got a great collection of American Bibles. So that's that's on the history floor. Um, there, there's a lot to do and a lot to see there. Um, we have a, a floor that's telling the main stories of the Bible, so you get to walk through. We have a Hebrew Bible experience where you go through what, what most what most Christians in America would know is the Old Testament. They, you'll be able to walk through um, each of those those main stories and understand that. We have a working Nazareth village on that floor, which is has been the most fun to see that come to life. Um, that that's the area that's the most defined now, so you can see what a synagogue would have looked like in that time. You could see what um, what an olive press would have looked like in that time. And then we have a floor dedicated to how the Bible has impacted America and how the Bible has impacted the world. So it'll go over um, pieces like the the Liberty Bell is there right now It was the first artifact item that was um, set in place. And on top of the Liberty Bell, there's a verse out of Leviticus um, that says, Proclaim liberty through all the land. You get to see that. And you go over the section of Bible and the world where you can see how the Bible has impacted um, the arts, impacted music, it's impacted fashion, it's impacted crime and justice. The idea of two or more witnesses actually came from that, using the the justice system, came from the Bible. So those are the types of stories that you'll get to hear and see.
0: How big is this Museum of the Bible going to be? So
5: the museum itself is 430,000 square feet, and as you as you walk in, I mean, it's just it honestly is breathtaking. I mean, everyone says that, but this, I, I promise you, <laughs> if you come, you'll be blown away whenever you walk into it. Um, that 430,000 square feet, just to give you an idea of the size, it is it is a little bigger than the main Air and Space Museum facility if you've ever been to Washington D.C. And as you walk in, uh, you'll be greeted by the front doors. There's two bronze gates, as we like to call them, that are Um, They look like um, printing plates from the Gutenberg press of Genesis 1. And you walk into a massive stained glass piece. So those gates are 40 feet tall. The stained glass piece is about 40 feet tall. And it is a uh, Greek papyri of Psalm 19. And as you walk into the lobby, there's Jerusalem stone everywhere. There's this beautiful pattern on the floor that goes from light, uh, from dark tile to light tile, showing that biblical theme of darkness to light. And if you look up, there is a 140 foot digital canvas. It's a massive screen. It's 15 feet wide and it is, it is just stunning.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the other features. You've just mentioned the entryway. There are eight floors of this Museum of the Bible. What do you see as perhaps the principal ways that individuals and families and church groups can engage with the, well, the massive number of, of artifacts and other displays that are within this museum?
5: yeah I think you know definitely make for sure that you plan enough time to be there um you can you can spend days in the museum um, and just make for sure that you a lot for that. um as you walk in, we also have a way you know we talked about that digital ceiling. well, we have a way that every person that comes in will be giving a a digital guide, so it's a tablet that they will take with them. And that's their guide through the museum. And it'll help them get from floor to floor. It's actually a patented technology where we are able to basically have GPS inside of the museum on each floor. And you can load your tour onto this tablet and it will take you where you want to go. And again, with with, with using the technology,
0: um, we're actually able to geofence exhibits. Jeremy Burton here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website museumofthebible.org. In correlation with Suicide Prevention Awareness Month during September, Jay Louder of Jay Louder Harvest Ministries discussed suicide and some of the warning signs of it. He also related how the church can be equipped to minister to those who are considering taking their own lives. From that recent conversation, this is Jay Louder.
6: The truth of it is sometimes it is very obvious, and there are other times it's very difficult to detect it. Uh, But some of those would be uh, a person that is fighting depression, maybe a person who normally would not have depressive thoughts that's going through a season of that, someone that might be on a tipping point that you might want to take a look at, a person who's exhibiting aggression. Um, easily provoked, verbally, physically attacks other people. Again, that would be uncharacteristic behavior. Um, Sudden substance misuse or abuse. A person who uses sparingly, who now is using in excess, or a person who's never used it now is using. Uh, A person who's going through isolation, withdrawal. Uh, That can be a sign of someone that's trying to unfold from life, so to speak. Another one is pets. I mean, uh, this seems to be so obvious. You may go, gosh, well, of, of course, but... The truth of it is, some of those threats are almost subliminal. You know, they're they're very uh, toned down. Thoughts, uh, threats like "I wish I'd have never been born." Uh, comments like "I just don't know if I can go on." Comments like "Life doesn't seem worth living." That may seem uh, as a like a colloquial saying, can be a very real warning to say, "Look at me." You know, I'm hurting. Uh, we talked about tragedy. We talked about being bullied. Uh, I mean, there's a whole list, but. If we had to narrow it down, these would be probably the seven most predominant signs of somebody that's on the ledge, somebody that you need to take a second look at. You need to engage and make sure that that they're okay and they're not on that tipping point.
0: Well, and let's talk about the church's role, because obviously we are the people who have been entrusted as ambassadors for Christ, representatives of his, people that have been given the truth, people who can minister with compassion and hope. So what do you see as some ways the church can actually be involved in preventing suicide or even intervening, recognizing these warning signs before someone actually goes to that precipice or even goes off the cliff?
6: Well, one of the things, and really the main thing, that seems to be common sense that is not happening is discussing it, talking about it. There's got to be open dialogue. People who struggle with thoughts of self-violence are typically people who are very isolated people who feel as though they've been marooned on some island. They're afraid to say anything, even in church. They feel like if they say something, they're going to be looked at as a person who doesn't have enough faith, a person who's not praying. Uh, I've had numerous people tell me that they felt as though they were kind of blackballed. Um, you know that that people kind of looked at them as though there was something uh, diametrically wrong with them. And the truth of it is. Um, I think about a place I was at in the United Kingdom where there was some real opposition against our ministry because we were talking about it because there's this fallacy that talking about suicide can lead to suicide. Well, if you look at all the statistics, it proves time and again that the greatest deterrent to people taking uh, uh, acting upon thoughts of self-violence is communication. It's not just the willingness to communicate, it's actively engaging other people who may be potential uh, people in potential danger. So it's open communication. It's open dialogue. It's, it's going out of your way to make sure that you're accessible, uh, that you're engaged, that you're plugged into other people. Um, there, there are other simple things that the church can do outside of talking about it, discussing. You know, I, I find it ironic The church doesn't often church doesn't want to talk about suicide Yet we see it in the Bible. There are numerous people in the New Testament and the Old Testament who ended their lives. People can start work groups. You know, your pain is your platform. There are listeners that are hearing this program today who are victims. Maybe they've never struggled with suicidal thoughts, but they've lost a loved one. Why? it be a great opportunity for those people to start a workshop or a help group or an open uh, communication group. So I think it starts with discussion, um, interaction, interaction. Intentional involvement, but it can also translate into um, support groups, help groups, even simple things uh, such as having accessibility or recommendations for suicide hotlines, for a Christian counselor or a pastor or a, a psychiatrist that they can go to. It's having tools accessible to help people who are in need.
0: Jay Louder here on The Intersection. Learn more through jaylauder, L-O-W-D-E-R dot Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Stephen Aden, Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel for Americans United for Life. In our conversation, he discussed ways that lawmakers across the nation, including in Congress, can act to prevent taxpayer funding from being sent to Planned Parenthood, the nation's largest
7: abortion provider. From that
0: conversation, this is Stephen Aiden. It
7: is way past time to defund America's biggest abortion provider, which is what Planned Parenthood is. And the members of Congress, uh, especially the House of Representatives, recognize this, and uh, they have been, uh, a number of them have been pushing hard, especially on the reconciliation uh, budget, to um, make this happen. And that was the gist of the letter uh, that uh, calls upon the um, members and uh, leaders of Congress to uh, look again at the fiscal year 2017 reconciliation bill and to pass it uh, with the provision that defunds, takes taxpayer dollars out of the pockets of Planned Parenthood um, for uh, one year in the case of this resolution. We hope that it's permanently but one year is a start. Uh, That's got installed of course but the letter Uh, seeks to reignite it. Uh, There is uh, another effort behind that one on the uh, fiscal year 2018 um, reconciliation bill if it's necessary. But the goal of this effort is to convince uh, congressional leadership to keep the heat up on the 2017 budget bill as well as 2018 if necessary in order to take public funding out of the pockets of America's biggest abortion provider. Um, The truth is that Planned Parenthood is all about not providing women's health care, but rather uh, they want to corner the market, kill the competition with regard to providing abortion in America, so much so that uh, in the last couple of years they provided, or committed actually is a better term, one-third of all the abortions in America, over 300,000 annually in the last several years. Uh, So pro-life leaders, uh, many members of Congress recognize that it is way past time to defund America's largest abortion provider, Planned Parenthood, and uh, that's the reason for this effort.
0: It seems that there are some other avenues that members of Congress are investigating in order to to perhaps get this done as well. Is that correct?
7: Yes, that's correct. Actually, 15 states so far have taken steps to defund Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry, and there's a couple Principal ways by which they do so. First of all, a big chunk of their income comes from being providers of family planning services through federal Medicaid. Now the states have uh, the job of distributing uh, federal Medicaid dollars and the job of deciding who is a qualified provider for Medicaid family planning funding. And so some of those states have uh, taken that responsibility and cut off Uh, the Planned Parenthood affiliates of the abortion providers in their states by saying that uh, these videos of the Center for Medical Progress has put out showing uh, Planned Parenthood or other abortionists um, uh, in in horrible situations where they're uh, going through the abortion process, they're joking about eyeballs falling out onto laps, uh, other things uh, that are so horrific you wouldn't even want to repeat them on the radio, but just treating human life very callously. So, and in addition to that, uh, demonstrating a disregard for federal law, which prohibits abortion providers from profiting from the sale of baby body parts, and we believe, and many others do, and these videos tend to show that they actually do uh, profit from the sale of baby body parts ostensibly for research. So uh, a, a number of these states have said enough is enough, And they have yanked funding under Medicaid. They have declared them ineligible to be Medicaid providers. And many of those cases are still in court um, and have gone different ways. Ultimately, the Supreme Court, I think, will settle that question. And hopefully, it will settle it favorably in favor of state authority over Medicaid. The second way is the federal family planning program, which is Title X. That's the one that provides uh, family planning services for indigent persons and Planned Parenthood gets the lion's share of that one. Uh, What states have done there is said that those dollars that would have gone to abortion providers and subsidized abortion are instead going to public health agencies like uh, community health centers, uh, federally qualified health centers.
0: Stephen Aiden here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to aul.org. We are nearing the end of today's edition of The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Through the homepage, you will find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also get subscribed to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. You can get connected to video content as well. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.